regulated. One, two, one, two, three, four. This podcast focuses on regulatory and corporate developments in highly regulated spaces. I'm Christian Bax, and I used to regulate medical marijuana. I'm Tony Glover, and I used to regulate alcoholic beverages and casino gambling. Now together, we're regulated. Welcome back to another week of Regulated. Tony, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Great. So ladies and gentlemen, we've got a alcoholic beverage targeted podcast as we're going into as well, I guess, as we've already begun session to talk about some of the issues that are moving right now in session. So Tony, why don't you kick us off with our alcohol centric podcast? Yeah. So if you're a regular listener, you may recall our episode from the end of Florida's last legislative session way back on May 14, 2019. And instead of kind of a traditional recap of the legislative action, we looked at the way that session ended, just generally the alcoholic beverage industry. You know, you looked at Friday, May 3rd, which was the last Friday of session. Every bill that was was uh, indefinitely postponed on that day uh, r- related to the alcoholic beverage industry really is the slew of bills that would have shaken up the relationships between vendors, craft manufacturers, both on the beer side and the liquor side and distributors. But the fact of the matter is this job never ends. I can tell you that discussions about 2020 in the alcoholic beverage space have already started. So I think it's shaping up to be a beverage battleground next year. So just stay tuned. It's going to be a fun one. So for the record, is it legal to bring your cat and your dog into a bar now? (laughs) (laughs) When you talk about there being a beverage war coming, is it just because there was kind of this legislative log gem? Like it seemed like everything got killed on the on like the final you know twenty fifth hour of session. It if they just all of this stuff that had been moving just collapsed and died. So so there's there's two ways to look at this. One is that all the issues from 2019, so you uh, are still there. So you have a lot of parties that want something. Whether you're talking about craft. Um, uh, distillers who want to get on the same, you know, even the playing field between them and craft brewers. And then you have craft brewers that want some changes to their regulating statutes. Um, and then you have distributors who want none, none of this, right? <laughs> you know, right. they, they want to push back on it. So there's just a lot of parties that had a, a, a key piece of legislation that they wanted that didn't get it. So they're going to be back with those issues. I, I summarized some of our thoughts about 2020 in a May 2019 piece called Conflict Brewing why the 2020 legislative session already matters. That was four days after session. So let me just read a quick passage from that. The end of session didn't end the business or regulatory situations that led to those bills in the first place. And many of these issues are likely to return next year. Specifically, the following baskets of issues seem primed to make a comeback. Craft distillery deregulation, craft brewery self-distribution, dogs and cats in bars, and the fourth one being Merlot to go and other wine container issues. Signy die was only four days ago, but it's already time to start working for 2020. So here we are at the start of the 2020 session, and let's see how those predictions held up. And I think we were mostly right. Yeah, absolutely. I actually went back and listened to the pod that we did 
uh, that, that closed out last session. And I got to say, there were, uh, there were two people who were really winners, right? So one were the lobbyists and the industry that wanted to keep alcohol and beverage status quo last year. And then the other one was you for two reasons. One, because you, you, a lot of your predictions for alcoholic beverage came true. But second, because I didn't realize this before, but you told everybody on the pod that you don't watch Game of Thrones. And, you know, total big winner because be, be, between the last time that we recorded this pod and now, uh, we had that complete flop on its face that you completely avoided. <laughs> So kudos to you. Let's go. Let's go to the more important thing that you were right about, other than Game of Thrones, which is which is the alcohol stuff. So, I mean, congrats. You you did. You got you went four for four as far as predicting exactly what the trends were going to be going into this session. Well, why don't we give some context on the Florida legislative process? Because I know we have listeners from out of the state. So, just so everybody knows, it's a part time legislature down here in Florida. Um, they meet in session every year for 60 days. And essentially, the only legislation that they have to pass every year is the state budget. So there's a there's a natural time crunch every year. It feels like a Safdie Brothers film. If anyone has seen uh, Uncut Gym starring Adam Sandler, which is a pressure cooker, it's very fast paced. It's a sprint. It's not a marathon. So what that means is that it can take years for any given proposal to gain enough support to make it through the process before everybody goes home. Session is a crazy time in downtown Tallahassee. And I guess before we jump into legislation, Christian, what's your what's your favorite part of session? Oh, my gosh. Let me think about that for a second. My favorite part of session. Do they do they still do the jelly beans and free soda up on the fifth floor of the Capitol? You know, I don't know. And I was hoping <laughs> that was mine, too, right? <laughs> because it's. It's it's the craziest thing, you know, so I've been working in and around the Capitol for, let's see, I got my first job in the Capitol in 2004. So pre, there was a big gift ban that was passed where lobbyists and, and companies couldn't give gifts to staffers after I started working in the process. So, and there was this weird situation, even as a 20 year old kid, uh, back then it was like MCI or AT&T, whichever company was sponsoring it. They had a big logo, you know, old school had a big logo in the Capitol in free snacks <laughs> for everybody who walked by. And I was like, is this legal? Well, so I was, I was working for a Tallahassee firm back in 2011, 2012. And so post gift ban. And I can remember a couple days where things were, things were kind of moving and I wasn't able to leave for lunch. So literally from 8 a.m. to about seven o'clock at night, all I had eaten that day was, was Mountain Dew and jelly beans, basically. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, broke, broke law school student. It was, it was awesome. So, you know, it's, it's cool to see, it's cool to see people who you've worked with in state government who have kind of gone on to other things specifically. If, if they're if they're in house for a shop or if they've moved to another city and you know they they come back for sixty days they get an Airbnb or you know split a room downtown with with some other people who are coming back in town so it's always nice to see you know your friends uh, just move in even though it's just for two months. Well, I'll tell you what's not nice is both of the students and the everyone working in government descending on Tallahassee at the exact same time because our our road capacity shrinks. By about, by about two hundred percent, right? Well, back in two thousand five, I was working in uh, the governor's uh, office of policy and budget, way up on the sixteenth floor, right? And mm-hmm. there's nothing better than on a a warm March day getting into an elevator with seventy two students from Sable Palm Elementary <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. So, so Tony, I know that you've targeted. Uh, about 10 pieces of legislation so far. And, you know, they've been falling into four 
larger baskets. So let's kick it off by talking some craft distilleries deregulation. Right. And, you know, where I come from on this, I think it's unfair that breweries and wineries can serve their own products on their premises under certain circumstances, of course, and that some bars can even open breweries on their sites. Meanwhile, if you look at craft distilleries, they're stuck with a bunch of statutory handcuffs. So just for context, 56503 of the Florida statutes defines a craft distillery as a licensed distillery that produces 75,000 or fewer gallons per year. Um, so they're limited under that section to selling to consumers um, sealed products um, for consumption off premises. So they basically are allowed to have a gift shop. But here's where the, the real handcuff comes in. They can only sell in face-to-face transactions. So that means no online sales, no deliveries, things of that nature. And each consumer can only buy six products a year. And it's frankly constrained the growth of craft distilleries. And So what's the origin of the distinction between how craft breweries and craft distilleries are regulated? Is it as simple as, you know, one produces and sells beer and the other produces and sells liquor? Well, I, I think there was a time when the regulations for each were relatively comparable. I think the key difference now is that we, we're on the tail end of a craft beer uh, renaissance, you know, the emergence of craft beer as an economic factor, as a cultural factor in Florida and across the country um, means that the craft beer folks organized quicker, right? And their lobbyists, um, shout out to Josh Abishan at Holland and Knight, uh, who represents the 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 Florida craft beer uh, industry? Him and 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 other folks allied with him were able to get started on this issue quicker. So what we've seen over the last year, and I started hearing buzz about this back in June and July, August and September of last year, is that the craft distillers are getting more serious about um, their association and about playing in this process. So I think the fact that we're seeing this legislation is a natural outgrowth of them getting organized. But yeah, really, from a from a policy standpoint, the reason that craft distilleries are lagging behind craft breweries in terms of regulatory climate is because of uh, sort of the results of years of lobbying or a lack of effort. Um, I think that's the key difference. When you're talking about legislation for regulated industries, a lot of times you're looking at who are running those bills because you have legislators that are kind of steeped in that world and who have favor with leadership or are generally credible on that issue. Uh, when you're looking at alcohol bills, are there legislators in particular that are kind of like the, the man or the woman on on that issue that, that we should be watching for whether or not they're involved in, in particular pieces of legislation? Well, generally on a beverage bill, same thing in gaming, cannabis, really any of these regulated industries. What you're looking for is a legislator that has a lot of clout. Um, one of the key indicators of that, if you're outside of the process, because sometimes it's hard to know behind the scenes who's a prolific fundraiser or who's making things move within the respective party. Um, but if you look for you look for a simple word uh, next to their name, which is chairman, um, if they're a chairman of a committee um, or, or have any sort of leadership position, that's usually a pretty key indicator of enough clout to get something passed. Right. And it's particularly um, useful when that person is chairman of a powerful committee or chairman of the subject matter committee over the, the over the topic, right? So it's interesting in this context, we've got um, uh, Senator Hudson, who's a very powerful chairman in the Florida Senate, is running SB 138, which would broaden the definition of a craft distillery. Um, it, it makes it easier to qualify by moving that 75,000 gallon per year limit 
shifting that up to 200,000 gallons per year. And it would also remove the six container per person per year limit um, for distilleries. Uh, importantly, SB 138 would also allow distilleries to open tasting rooms or bars, basically consumption on premises at their locations, which frankly is a no brainer from a fairness and economic perspective. And I'd note too that there's similar language in HB 583, SB 482, and HB 1165. So when you see four bills, um, two Senate, two House, that have the same language, in this case, very, very similar language that would uh, provide some some opportunities for these craft distilleries, um, it means that this is a real issue that might be going somewhere. So I'm watching this one closely. Okay. So moving into self-distribution uh, as far as craft brewery, what, what's moving in the legislature right now? Just a quick background in a sentence or two. Generally speaking, there's three tiers of alcoholic beverage operators. There's manufacturers, distributors, and vendors, vendors being the retailers that sell it to consumers, the end user. There's statutory separations between each of the tiers. And generally speaking, a brewery cannot distribute its own products to vendors. They have to sell their product to a a distributor who then in turn sells it to the vendor. So there's a markup there and there's lost opportunity to recognize some additional revenue, et cetera, et cetera. In 2020, there's two bills. They're identical, HB 1153 and SB 1584, that would allow craft breweries that produce less than 60,000 barrels a year to cut out the middlemen by self-distributing their products to retailers. Now, there are strings attached. One, you cannot have a current franchise agreement with the distributor. And, And note that those agreements are notoriously hard to break and that the Florida statutes imposes a lot of very specific hurdles for breaking those agreements. So you're already seeing some folks on Twitter kind of chattering about the fact, you know, if you're a successful craft brewery in Florida in 2020, you probably already have a franchise agreement with the distributor that you can't get out of. So there's a perception that some of those folks are being locked out. But this is actually a pretty tough policy situation because you don't want to have a statute interfere with existing contracts from a legal perspective. Right. So, the, I, I mean, the bottom line is that this is a, a positive development for craft breweries. So we don't want to take that away. But there are some realities in terms of, the, you know, the status of the regulatory environment and the contractual um, obligations that have been placed on folks. And what's your what's your feel for the likelihood of that bill actually moving forward and getting past the session? It's hard to read because I have to imagine the distributors are raising holy hell about this. And, you know, of course, the distributors are are, are um They've got great teams. <laughs> there's there's a couple associations that provide representation, and the distributors are, have have been an effective advocate against this sort of modernization in the past. So, you know, fifty fifty might be generous, but the fact again, just you know, reading the tea leaves here, the fact that you have two bills that have identical language, one in the House, one in the Senate, shows that there's a strategy here, and it shows that this is a real conversation. So we're gonna have to watch this in committee to see what the what the tone of that conversation looks like and how inevitable um, passage or failure looks. But this is something that will be pretty clear. I think we'll, we'll figure this out pretty quickly. So speaking of distribution of alcohol, different type of distribution here to a different type of buyer. But uh, one of my favorite topics in alcohol to talk about with you is Merlot to go and uh, <laughs> AKA giant containers of wine being sold to, or, 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 being taken home by customers. So can you talk us a little bit about the Merlot to go legislation? So there's two issues wrapped up uh, in this wine container discussion. One is Merlot to go. Basically, you know, how easy is it for me to, to order a bottle of wine at a restaurant, drink a glass of it, and then say, hey, pop the cork back in. I'm taking this to go. 
And the current statute provides a bunch of hurdles for that. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, you have to have ordered a full course meal to qualify. So it can't be a scenario where you go and get, you know, get some apps or some oysters and then take your bottle of wine with you. There's just a bunch of, of headaches engaged with that. So three of the 10 beverage bills would make mm-hmm. it easier for restaurants to allow patrons to remove partially consumed bottles of wine for off-premises consumption. So that's something that shows, I mean, three different bills filed. That's definitely on somebody's radar, right? Um, and also, for whatever reason, the state's prohibition against individual wine containers larger than one gallon is drawing a lot of attention. And let me read the statute. That's 56405. It is unlawful for a person to sell within the state wine in an individual container holding more than one gallon of such wine, unless some wine is in a reusable container holding 5.16 gallons. Now, a pretty shocking five of the 10 alcoholic beverage bills in Florida would repeal that statute. So <laughs> you could potentially go buy a 10-gallon jug of wine. I don't know what the commercial application for that would be, but it would ease some of those restrictions. This is an interesting issue because I, I'm not sure I, I am for flexibility in our regulatory uh, structure. And this is something that you know should be flexible. There's no real public safety concern here. But I, I am a little surprised that this issue has been so, even though I predicted it, this issue has been so resilient because it shows that there's a lot of people that really care about it. And as we joked back in May, maybe it's just the lobbyist. Maybe all the lobbyists are trying to make their, their holiday parties a little easier. Well, so Tony, I want to ask you a very serious question on this particular issue. Are wine people just trying to make wine kegs, kegs a thing? Because if they aren't, <laughs> we need to be in that business. Because I just, I, I mean, the only, like I'm just reading that and I'm, I'm always, my ears always perk up when I see just a, spe- a very specific number or an unusual term and just, and just throwing out there the 5.16 gallons. I just Googled that and it was, it's the equivalent to something called the Cornelius keg, but that that's a gallon of wine is a, it's a jug of wine. That's a lot of wine for, for an individual consumer to walk out of anywhere with. So it seems like once you're getting over and above a gallon, it, it's kind of like, party size, right? You're buying probably to consume as a group. And it, it just seems like that's where they're going with this, either a, like a pony keg of wine or like a, a giant full-size keg. Right. I, I, yeah. I think the main applications, to your point, are kind of special events, uh, novelty applications. So, you know, it would be fun as a joke gift for a bachelorette party to give a two-gallon bottle of Dom Perignon or, 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 or something like that. And then also there's one specific application, and this is a narrow application, but uh, we saw in Tallahassee, um, the city had uh, put in place an ordinance that required alcohol sales at local bars to stop at a certain time, uh, an hour before the bars actually closed. So the idea was there was basically a cool off period. You could order all the natty lights or whatever at the college bar before XAM, one of the ways that people got around this was selling supersized containers of alcohol. Right. At the, at the, at closing, at, you know, at last call. So you would buy, um, you know, a pitcher of beer, a bucket of beer, or a gigantic jug of alcohol. And the idea being that this can last you and your buddies for that 45 minutes, hour cutoff before you guys finally stagger out the door and hopefully Uber home. So, yeah, it limited application. But like I said, five of the 10 bills would repeal 56405, the wine container size issue. And three of the bills would make it easier for restaurants to 
to allow patrons to remove partially consumed bottles. So somebody cares about this and this thing looks like it's moving. So we'll see. It looks, it seems kind of like the growler issue, right? Where there are, there are entire businesses that have popped up around Florida that their, their, their main, their main value proposition is that they sell these large containers of beer that didn't, that weren't previously allowed to be sold to consumers. But it, it, it seems kind of like that's, that seems to be what's happening. If there are five different bills, there seems to be a business opportunity, an opportunity for people to, to, for someone to kind of capitalize on that type of legislative change in order to sell like large containers of wine similar to a growler. Well, one takeaway from this is, you know, if the Florida legislature is going to come here every spring and take a critical eye to old statutes and remove old timey provisions that really have no public policy purpose, I'm all for that. Because God knows 561, 562, 563, 564, and 565, the mm-hmm. entire beverage law is full of wacky <laughs> pardon my language. And, you know, this is one of those. I'm sure there was a good reason for this when they enacted it, but it, it, it looks funny in the light, so to speak. So uh, if this means that the legislature is going to take that proactive sort of posture about this, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what old timey thing they come back in 2021 and try to take out. Let's move into our last category, and I won't spend too much time on this, but this is Christian's favorite legislative issue from 2019, and I'm so happy that it's back for 2020. HB 1165 would allow dogs in establishments that serve alcohol, and there's four main points here. One, the dog has to be on a leash and under control. Two, the dog cannot be on a table, a bar top, or any other furnishings. Three, it cannot be in a food prep or storage area. In four, the dog waste must be cleaned immediately in the area sanitized. Oh, good. So they can take a crap in the middle of the restaurant as long as as long as it's cleaned up very quickly. You could still have things pooping in, yeah. the, in the, the middle of, this, of the, your. The bill does not prohibit dog waste. <laughs> it appears to tacitly allow dog waste. <laughs> it, I guess it, it allows short term. I guess is what it's. <laughs> yes, basically, basically, which which I think is a is a very good metaphor for this entire policy that we've we've somehow blindly like waded into over the last decade. Um, so let, let me just let me just throw out here, right? So we 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 got into this issue. We talked about this issue last year. I think it was to allow cats and bars. Here's my my. It's not a conspiracy theory because I think that the approach is obvious, and the obvious answer to why that was done and why I, I personally, as a consumer, hope that it's done again this year is because cats are a wedge issue. Uh, it is far more acceptable in the United States to speak ill of cats and to dislike cats than to disparage dogs. And so, if you introduce cats into this legislation then it becomes acceptable not to vote against dogs, but to vote against cats because who really wants cats in a, in a facility where you're consuming food or you're consuming beverages. And I I will tell you though, that as a dog owner and as someone who is allergic to cats, I would rather frequent a bar or a restaurant crawling with cats than with dogs because cats are quiet. A mean cat tells you to F off and hides under a bed. Dogs are loud. Dogs bark. They exacerbate poor ownership and untrained dogs can make your entire meal miserable. And a a mean dog 
is crazy dangerous, especially for, for other dogs or for little kids. I mean, we have a local establishment that has a large outdoor AstroTurf socializing area. And people bring little kids to that, which is bringing kids to a bar is a whole separate other issue. But every time I see someone bring a massive dog with like a massive head that's barking and they have to hold that dog back on a leash, you know, it's in control, it's on a leash, but it's, it's, you know, the forward pressure is being applied to that owner's arm. I'm just sitting back, crossing my arms, watching that. I'm like, man, I hope these guys, this, this restaurant, this bar has liability insurance because that, that just seems like a disaster waiting to happen. And so, um, I'm just, I, th- I just think we, we have gone too far with this particular issue. That's my dog rant in, in restaurants. Well, you know, I, I will note cats are not mentioned in the bill and I, and I, it's coming. It's coming. We were Please. Not, we were not able to <laughs> reach the Florida Cat Association in time for the podcast. <laughs> so I don't know who's lobbying for them. And, and, but it's interesting that the term dog is not defined in the beverage law. So do with that what you will. But, you know, I, I wonder if somebody could smuggle in a cat under a questionable statutory definition. <laughs> but kind of while we're on that topic, just just generally, I, I was reading a little bit about this issue when, when we came into this, and I, I've seen a bunch of editorial op-eds, news coverage about kind of the, the, the restaurant and bar scene in Manhattan, where it's kind of a confluence of those two issues, where there's pets being brought, but they're being brought into these bars and restaurants as service animals. But it's, it's getting more and more kind of out of control in the sense that there's nothing wrong with the dogs inherently. There's, there's been no stories about the dogs going crazy, but it's like people don't have boundaries, right? So unless you expressly ban, you'll have like the guy who's playing Vinny Chase from Entourage is bringing his dog into like a super nice five-star restaurant and saying it's a service dog, right? It, it just seems like we're, we, I don't know how, the resolution for this is going to come, but it, it seems like we're, what we're doing is kind of untenable with this issue. Right. I I do have a a quick dog in bar story, and this is actually a dog in a coffee shop, but uh, you know, it's, it's similar and they may sell alcohol there. I'm not sure if they do or not. So I was at St. Mike's pub, may it rest in peace and all saints downtown neighborhood of Tallahassee. Um, this was many years ago. I was young and fun. I didn't have a wife or, or a child at the time. So I was out on probably a Thursday mm-hmm. night to grab a quick beer at my neighborhood pub. And I, I ran into a guy I went to college with. And he's sitting with a group of fun people, all Saints area looking people, hipster, fun PBR drinkers. And he invites me to come sit down at the table. So I, I jump in, introduce myself. They're in the middle of a story. A guy is telling a story from a coffee shop he was visiting. Apparently, that's what it sounds like. And he's saying that some a customer is complaining to him that the coffee shop is infested with fleas and the person's arm or leg had been bitten up and was complaining, going back and forth with this guy. And this guy was like, I don't know why this lady is yelling at me about these fleas. Why are you telling me? I don't have anything to do with it. And I jump in at this point. I just got in there. I'm like, yeah, man, you're just another customer. Why did she jump to you? And he was like, well, well, I do work there. (laughs) He was the employee. (laughs) And so I won't name the coffee shop here, but I've never gone back to that place. If that's the type of attitude the employees have about a serious health issue being on the site is like, hey, man, why are you telling me? Um, That's not the type of vibe I'm into. 
But if you, so if you allow dogs in the first place, if you allow dogs into a coffee shop, it's, it's kind of like, that's going to happen. You're go, you're going to get fleas. You're going to have dogs poop and pee. It, it's just, they're, they're not as much as people would like for them to be people. They're, they're not, not people. And, and there just seems like there's, and, and, you know, I, I don't know where the, the future of this issue is, but maybe, maybe like a happy compromise is you, you almost treat it like, smoking where it's it's like you can have restaurants and bars that open the doors and say we're a we're a dog friendly pad and that's a comparative advantage it's something that's marketable people will identify you as a dog friendly restaurant or bar but then at the same time it's the exception not the rule so that if you don't like dogs or you you don't want to have to be at brunch and listen to a dog bark the whole time like you can affirmatively go places you know you're not going to have to encounter a dog Right. Look, I, I look. I'm just saying, a, a dog pooping on the floor <laughs> would absolutely ruin my slice of pizza. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it's not great for for the atmosphere of the restaurant. So, <clears throat> so yeah. So unless somebody would like to hire me to lobby lobby for this bill, I'm probably against the bill. <laughs> Unless somebody wants to hire me, in which case, you know, I'm which I'm you do do. You do have a history of dog lobbying. You you probably have some of the better known experience for lobbying for that particular animal in the state, right? Actually, I, and I would like some recognition from Florida politics or from Influence Magazine as as the state's top dog lobbyist. But nobody nobody wants to give me my flowers while I'm alive for some reason on this issue. But. So bonus FSF auditing issue. How do you want to transition into the bonus SFS auditing issue? Um, I'll just jump into it. Okay. Because I'm, I'm going to keep this one short because okay. I don't want to get into a rant about it because I'm angry about it. Okay. We do have a bonus issue that, frankly, we didn't see coming. Um, it affects special food service liquor licenses. And I don't want to spend too much time on this. And, and I'm not even going to explain to the listeners what an SFS liquor license is, um, what all the statutory requirements are. I would encourage them to Google it because I've written a long article about this. So, <laughs> But basically, there's a pair of bills, HB 689 and SB 912, that would substantially affect how often the state audits restaurants with SFS liquor licenses. I feel like this issue is being slept on a little bit because it's hidden in an occupational licensing bill. Um, the title of the bill is just Department of Business and Professional Regulation. So it's not a liquor bill. It just has one section that deals with liquor licenses. Uh, there is one bonus issue, and we may come back and do a special pod on it. It's about special food service liquor licenses. Essentially, the bills is HB 689 and SB 912 would punish certain compliant businesses by forcing them to subject to back-to-back state audits. And I won't go into the details here. I've written an article about it. We may do, like I said, we may do a podcast about this in the future. But just philosophically, I'm opposed to the idea that we should punish compliant businesses with more audits when you consider that these audits are bet the company. If you're not compliant, you're out of business is kind of the effect of these. But again, I'll be tweeting about this all session as this bill continues to march towards passage. It's already gone through a committee stop or two. So this is something that I think is very bad legislation that looks like it's going to pass, partially because it's hidden in the occupational licensing bill. So if any of the folks in the liquor licensing community would like to lobby on this issue um, or would like some technical support, I have some data and public records that undermine this legislation. 
uh, please reach out to me. <laughs> DMs, <laughs> DMs are open. I would love to kill this bill. Tony at deepthroat.com, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm, I told you I, I didn't want to get into this issue because I didn't want to end this podcast on a rant. I think this bill is terrible, and I, I I hate this bill. And and when when I go through, I tweeted about this uh, at the end of last week. I went through the staff analysis, and I was flabbergasted because it said that. Hold on, I'm going to pull this up. See, here we go. You got me going. I'm good. Glad this is this is good radio. So in every legislative staff analysis, there's a section, it asks whether there's a fiscal impact on the state, whether the state has to spend more money. And it also asks whether there's a direct economic impact on the private sector. With respect to the fiscal impact for the state, the staff analysis says that it's indeterminate, which I thought was hilarious because uh, by my math and based on the public records, this could multiply the number of audits that state will have to conduct every year. I don't understand how multiplying their workload doesn't require either serious reallocation of resources or a supplementing of of resources. So there's that. On to the second point, the direct economic impact on the private sector. This is what the staff analysis says, Christian. It says, quote, the bill may make it easier for licensees to maintain their licenses due to clarified regulatory schemes in regularized auditing and fee schedules. Well, it, it may be regular, but it's a regular bet the company audit that's going to put you out of business, potentially. <laughs> so, yeah, it's regular, all right. I, I, I don't see how that's helpful, <laughs> especially when you're looking at a licensee that has, you know, has passed a number of audits. These are small business people that are going to have to hire some jerk like me um, and some consultant, liquor licensing consultant and a CPA to save their business every year. Because they're doing exactly what the Florida statutes told them they were allowed to do when they got the license. So this is a mm-hmm. bad bill. And if somebody would like to pay me to travel to Tallahassee and testify <laughs> about it, I will testify about it. <laughs> we're just email staff this recording. Or we'll, we'll, I'll just snip this, this rant and we'll just maybe, – maybe we'll snip it. I'll save it on my iPhone and I'll just walk up to a committee hearing and press play and we'll get your we'll get your perspective on the record. Right. <laughs> well, we're not going to re- end on a rant, Tony, because that's that's our regulated policy. And I'm glad we didn't we didn't end on the dog rant. We're not going to end on the SFS rant. So what is your shout out of the week? Well, I'm probably going to keep the mic open after you log off and just scream into it for 60 minutes about these <laughs> SFS licensing bills that I, I, nobody seems to care about. I'm just dying in silence. And, you know, and here's what it's, I'm back on the rant. Here's what really gets me going, Christian. All right. I, I, you know, I actually, from a business perspective, benefit from this bill because they're going to be holding hundreds of licenses over a barrel every year with bet the company audits. And guess what my firm does? I help people mm-hmm. with audits. I help people with regulatory compliance, specifically dealing with alcoholic beverage regulations. So this is going to help me. It's probably going to be a net win for me. But I think the policy is so bad. Wait, hold, we, we said we weren't going to end on a rant. Is that what you said? <laughs> okay, let me. Let- no, this, this isn't an ant, a rant. This is, this is props to the Tony Glover law firm. <laughs> All right, let me, let me go to my real shout out for the week. Okay. <laughs> And this one, I'm going to try to pull the audio for this, but it, it may not translate. I just encourage everybody to go to at regulated pod. 
I think we have an early candidate for regulator of the year. And let's go to Madison. With oh, Congress. yes. yes. <laughs> and, you know, let's just try. Maybe we'll try to do kind of a play by play. I'm watching the clip now. So okay. this is from Madison, Wisconsin. It's a local alcohol license review committee. And, and, you know, once I get past the fact that I hate the fact that the Madison city government has an alcohol license review committee, just another layer of bad government regulation. Once I get past that, this clip is really funny. There, there's a guy who looks, I would best describe as a, a Midwestern version of a Miami Beach nightclub DJ, right? He's kind of tatted up. He's got platinum blonde hair, a black t-shirt. He looks very cool. He's, he's behind the dais, and there's a guy who looks kind of like a city councilman or a lawyer on the other side. And the, the lawyer says to him, I want to make sure I heard something right. You were saying so the vision is not a nightclub, and this is not a place for people to get wild? Is that what you said? I'm sure if we check the records, that's probably the case. Is this your website mm-hmm. that says get wild? Mm-hmm. Can I address this? I, I mean, yeah, I ask. The, the bottom line is I just want to thank the city of Madison, Wisconsin, for providing this incredible regulatory content on, on Twitter. This, this is I saw that clip as well, and, and it's actually <laughs> funny because you stole, you stole what would have been my, uh, <laughs> one of my shout out. Cause I, think, I saw several tweets that literally said regulator of the year. God bless people in local government who, who get to go through those hearings on a regular basis. So next week, we're going to touch on, we're going to do the same thing for cannabis. So there's been some very interesting developments in that world. Um, to go ahead and be a spoiler, I really don't see much happening this session with, uh, with legislation, but we'll, we'll cover what's on the, on the docket, uh, what's going to be coming up, what will be dying in committees almost certainly. And, uh, and, and kind of go into the, the proverbial weeds as to what we can expect, not just for the next few months, but there's, there's going to be some very interesting things happening directly after session, specifically in the courts. Um, so as always, thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. You can catch me at Christian Bax on Twitter. You can also catch Tony Glover at what's your Twitter handle, Tony? Glover Law FL. You can also catch us at Regulated Pod on Twitter. We also have an Instagram account. Please, if you would, take a moment after you turn off this podcast to subscribe, to review. It helps people find the show, helps us continue to grow. Uh, and as always, Tony, you want to send us off? Please, everyone, stay compliant.